Hello friends, welcome back to Operation Opera. Elisa and I had a wonderful discussion with Professor Arden Hopkin about vocal pedagogy and its place in the university system. Enjoy. It always lifts my spirits to see you. Ah, that's so great. Yay. Okay, so, so let's get started. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, great, Elisa, take it away. Yeah, Arden, will you just talk with us for a little bit about um, well, I'd love to start with your sort of your experience, uh, your history of singing and the evolution of your pedagogical approach along with your own voice and understanding your own voice um, as it relates to some things we've talked about before with power singing versus finding a more natural balance within the voice. I think that would be a great place to sort of jump off from. All right. Well, as a young man, when I first arrived at Brigham Young University as a freshman, uh, I was, I guess I was a precocious singer. Uh, everybody around me thought I had something special. I, I wanted to sing, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do, really. I'd been a folk singer in high school. I had sung in high school musicals. I'd had success in those kinds of things. I'd had um, a limited number of voice lessons of kind of an unwritten page. So within, the, within my freshman year, when I was 18 going on 19 years of age, I was cast as Amonasro in Aida, what? a production of Aida. That was my first operatic role. <laughs> and of course, I didn't know what that meant. And I, um, I jumped in and I gave it the best I could, but I didn't have any real technical skills to, to sustain me through that. I just sort of used my voice. I've, I've heard a recording of it and it was really raw and it was okay, it was just unschooled. So somehow I got a reputation for being an opera singer before I had any business to be an opera singer. And so for the next several years through my BYU education, I sang in the operatic productions. Um, and, but I didn't really want to. I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, and I was, it was getting where it was really hard work. But that's what I was supposed to do. And I got lots of feedback, but not very much clear direction from teachers or, I mean, I, was, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened. Maybe I wasn't a good listener. Maybe I wasn't open for, to being educated. Maybe people that were working with me didn't know what to tell me to do. So I just sort of fussed my way through as best I could, sort of on my raw talent. Finished my bachelor's degree and I was viewed as being one of the most successful in my graduating class. So I went on for a master's degree and I traveled to the University of North Texas, where I studied with the man who was currently the president of NADS. And I thought that was great. And again, I got involved in the opera program and sang lots of opera scenes and um, some productions. While I was in my master's degree, I was hired by the Goldovsky Opera Company to tour with them. So I took a little hiatus from my, my training, went and toured professionally, came back, did summer stock theater in the local, in the Texas area. And 
auditioned for the local regional opera company, the, the Fort Worth Opera. I still didn't really know how to sing. I just sang. But I, I came to find out in my first audition for the Fort Worth Opera, it was uh, for the commissioner, the imperial commissioner in Madame Butterfly. Little bitty part. And so I sang a big operatic aria. And the director, who was a German guy, didn't much care for it. He said, you want to try that again and see, give me a little bit more? So I just shifted out of my balance registration and got into my chest and just drove it. And he loved it and he hired me. So that was a kind of a message that I had to sing. I had to sing in that voice in order to make a, an impression as an opera singer. Interesting. And may I just, so I just want to mention, you mentioned that the teacher you were working with um, at UNT was part of NATS, and that's the National Association of uh, Teachers of Singing. Of the Teachers of Singing in the United States. Okay. So he was a he was a coach. He knew how to coach the literature, but he didn't know how to solve problems. So I finished my my master's degree and was looking where to go, and and uh, I went in and asked him about it, and he said, Arden. Uh, you, you just have a flawed voice. Why don't you just get your master's degree, you go get a teaching position, and you've got a family, you know, just have a good life. And I'm sure he meant well by that instruction, but that was a, a real slap in my face. Um, I had suffered through my master's degree a, a little bit of religious uh, prejudice, I mean, open prejudice against me, because uh, I was I was overt, I was open about my beliefs, and I was in a Bible Belt area where people were suspicious. Be that as it may, uh, when I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to take his advice, and I auditioned and was admitted to Eastman for my doctor's degree. In the, in the meantime, I'd started to develop skills as a stage director, kind of a backup skill set. Went to Eastman, had a very successful doctoral program, sang professionally during the time, summer stock, the summer seasons at Chautauqua Opera I was there for several seasons and uh, did some regional opera in the area. So I thought I was doing okay. But when it came time for me to really think about finishing my degree, I was approaching 30 at that point. I thought, um, when I go to New York, I'm gonna, at best, I'm gonna be a journeyman singer. I've got a lot of things that I can't do yet. I'm not gonna be a star straight off. So how am I going to feed my family of a wife and four children? And I didn't have an answer for that question. I thought maybe. So I, I looked around and I found one benefactor that would have given me support. But I didn't feel good about it and it wouldn't have been enough. And, and so I, I bailed on my career. And that was a really, really hard time for me. Uh, finished my degree, went back to Texas, taught at TCU. But I never really knew how to sing. You know, I sang, but I didn't really know how to solve my own problems. When I was in good voice, I sounded great, but I couldn't sustain my, my voice, and I, my voice would wear out because I was over singing all the time. So that's my story. Then um, I, I directed opera at, at TCU for um, about 13 years. It was a very limited program, small, small budget. I was felt envy. Um, along the way, trying to build the program, I hired a, a renowned vocal pedagogist to come in and build a pedagogy program because I thought that was a better educational model 
than trying to be an opera school when it was a small campus. Well, he developed a wonderful um, nationally renowned vocal pedagogy program. Um, so then uh, I decided I needed to move. There was a job opening at BYU. I applied for it uh, and it was voice teacher opera director. The previous op director was still there. He'd just been put, sort of pushed aside because he was a troublesome personality. It's always a fun position to be brought into, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a, good, not a good set. So I came in and I did uh, good productions, but he and his wife mounted a campaign against me at my third year review, saying that my operas were too earthy, that they, they and they, they were, they were edgy, but they weren't really edgy. Edgy for BYU. <laughs> yeah. BYU. There was a shoulder. No. Sorry. Well, that, that's, so the production that I did uh, was uh, Deflator Mouse. Mm. And of course, that's a little bit lascivious anyway. But in the second act, you know how Norlovsky's aria, it's, it's a nothing aria. And so I tried to dress it up. And so it's strophic. At the end of the first verse, across the back of the stage, I had a cute co-ed run across with her dress off of her shoulder, sort of running for her life. Hold it. And, and then I had, uh, I had a, a man come on, and he went, oh, and he went running off after her, right? So at the end of the second verse, <laughs> he came running back across the stage, his coat off, his tie loose, running for his life. And she came on, and she went, Meow, and went after him. So that, there were a couple of more of those kind of things, but but it was uh, sort of scandalous, and I, I wasn't prepared for that scandal. So at the end of the third year, the director of the school called me and he said, you know, there's some pushback at having you an opera director. Um, would you be interested in becoming the uh, the assistant to and putting the other guy back in charge? And I said, I want nothing to do with that guy. All he does is go make messes. I'd spend all my time building fences after he tore them down. I, I don't. I don't want that. So we said, well, would you take over the pedagogy program? And I said, I've never had a pedagogy class in my life. And he said, but, but you, you built this program in Texas. I said, sure, I hired a guy to come in and build a program. I never took any of his classes. I don't know how to teach pedagogy. And he said, well, would you give it a try? Because what's going on right now is not successful. So the first time I taught undergraduate pedagogy, I was three chapters ahead of, in the book from where the students were. And, and even at that, it was better than what they got. They, they liked it. And so I got good reviews. And so I just stayed on as the pedagogist. And over the course of a couple of years, I didn't have to read my notes. And I didn't have to, I started to become conversant with what I was trying to talk about. I've always been a curious person. And so that sort of set me on a different pathway uh, to do some research and puzzle and solve my own problems is really basically what it boils down to. And over the time, I, I published some articles and I did some research and I got involved in legitimate research, but I was always curious to find answers that would allow a practical application. Some of the stuff was just really theoretical and so I, I tried to absorb it and then try to make sense and bit by bit, little wheels would lock into place, cogs would fit in place, and um, little strokes of inspiration would come my way, and, and I evolved as a, as a voice teacher. And 
and, and that's kind of the path of how I got where I am, sort of accidental. Right, so yeah, do you have a question, that's, Rachel? That's more story than you wanted, but that's my story. Oh, it's a good story, it's a great story. That was actually very concise. It was. How common do you think that is, Arden, in the university setting where pedagogy just kind of became important and when did that sort of become important and how did you sort of see that evolving like in in the university it happened uh, before i was really on the scene the the first really renowned vocal pedagogist was william venard back in the 1940s and uh it evolved because uh during world war two maybe world no i think it was world war one and two where they developed submarines, they had to develop some sort of way of detecting those submarines. So they started doing things with acoustics, sonar soundings and so forth like that. But that, uh, that piqued the curiosity of, of acousticians and they started trying to see what other applications might be available for that sort of thing. Um, X-ray was coming in. In the early days, people would have themselves X-rayed. They took X-ray movies. Uh, of their throats while they were singing, not realizing the damage that that would do in terms of exposure to radiation. Um, but, but they were just trying to learn. And Bernard was the first sort of renowned voice scientist. And then because he had such success with Marilyn Horn and a number of other singers like Marilyn Horn, the, the world started coming to his doorstep. And, and he was at USC, is that right? That's correct. And so he taught uh, the, the main thing of his teaching was Yon Sai. Prior to that time, the emphasis had, had simply been on teachers who were good singers, who sort of mentored others who wanted to learn how to sing. And most of that didn't, didn't amount to teaching voice. It amounted to Copying. sing it this way. You know, here's the example. Wrote. You know, you already sing well. There was some discussion about support and placement, but no real understanding of what was going on in the larynx and in the throat. You know, and there was this fear of being involved. The truth is that way back in the 1830s, uh, Manuel Garcia started that process and was the first recorded pedagogist. So Manuel Garcia started this, this sort of movement toward bel canto and it was, it led to some really remarkable singers all the way up into the 1920s or 30s. Uh, but, but the onset of the grand opera, Wagner, what its influence on the Italian opera of the last half of the century and the beginning of the 20th century led to uh, voices that were no long, longer aligned and were more opulent and, and seemingly bigger, fatter voices. And, um, and the singing moved away from the cantalena of the bel canto period where you really had connection all the way through the line to a more declamatory, more of a barking kind of uh, production. And so um, by, the, by the 1920s, 30s, 40s, singing had gone through, you know, the old bel canto is starting to be devalued and this more rich fat sound, hence the Bernard Yon Sai, and you listen to Marilyn Horn, and she has this voluptuously rich mezzo-soprano quality that's eminently flexible at the same time. So the next uh, pedagogist that I, that I really knew anything about was uh, Richard Miller, 
and he taught at Oberlin and, and, and he, was, he was really good. Uh, and he was a little bit more scientific and he was trying to bring voice science into the teaching of voice. And the thing that marked him in terms of sound production was the difference between the sighing sound, the aspirate sound, ha, ha, and the hard onset, ah, ah, and the in-between, ah, 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 so a silent H kind of approach. So he, he uh, was trying to coax that sort of thing out of people. So sometimes, sometimes pedagogy was very scientifically oriented, and as the years have gone by, it's become increasingly um, more uh, scientific in its orientation, less applied science and more esoteric science, leaving it to somebody else to figure out how to make the application of it. And that's kind of where I fit in, uh, because I was always interested in the application of what's going on. So I don't even know for sure how, how I evolved the way I evolved, but the first thing that happened to me was I was still teaching in Texas, and I began to understand that vowels could be aligned in such a way to tune the resonances to make things easier to sing. And so I evolved a system that I called vowel equalization. I published an article in that journal that got some attention. And it, it uh, was the beginning of my understanding that acoustics played a part in the whole thing. So then I began to experiment with something that I called threshold singing. Um, Alyssican has been messing around with that for a while and can talk to her experience with it, but it basically was a way of overcoming the tendency to, for operatic singers to sing in a pressed phonated kind of a way to, to give the impression of power when in actual fact they were just wearing themselves out. And that's what I'd done as a professional singer all of my life. Makes you into a sprinter. You're not a long distance singer when you, when you sing that way. Short distances. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As long as the role is short and you don't have too many performances, you're fine. But you get in a long run and oh my, that's trouble. So then um, the third leg in the stool of my evolution happened when I uh, purchased this Marchese uh, Bel Canto technique that Alyssa held up in her picture and uh, the Bel Canto technical and theoretical practice. And so I, I, uh, these women all were uh, students of Manuel Garcia, as was Matilda Marchese. She was the last of the original Bel Canto teachers, uh, singers that had trained with uh, Manuel Garcia. Anyway, um, I bought her book. It had the very first exercise were emission of the voice or the onset drills. I'd seen those from Conconi and Bakai and all of the others that I'd looked at, uh, Newton. And then, it, then I, I looked at the next several pages and thought, I don't know what that's about, and went on until I got to the scales pages and started singing the scales just like I'd done with all of the other vocalese books that I'd. And I probably had used the book for my own uses for a couple of years. And one day I just thought, hmm, what are these pages that I keep skipping for? And they were portamento drills. Well, by the time I finished the first octave of the scales, my concepts were totally revolutionized because I was in a different place. My voice was behaving in a way that I'd never felt it behave before. So I, I went through the chromatic scale, then the diatonic scales, and 
And then I, there are little portamento exercises. I've, I evolved my own based on those things, but they were all, the notes were connected together and there was no articulation between the notes. Well, that was revolutionary and I didn't know, I, so I just called it portamento drills. And I realized that to build a scale, Marchese would first do these little chromatic things and then the diatonic scales. Then she started building a scale and she'd just go, oh, oh, trying to get the voice to move through the scale without articulation. And eventually you get up to seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, sixth, seventh octaves. Then the second octave, ninths, tenths, elevenths, twelfths, then fourteenths, uh, which is a seventh, and then two octaves. Before you ever get into scale work, real scale work, she built a two octave scale. And I was like, whoa, what is this all about? And along the way, I began to feel my voice behaving in much, much different kinds of ways. And I continue to play with that and continue to try to introduce other people to that. I retired and I continued to teach in the community, but now I was dealing with people that were not serious singers, so to speak. They were community people, they just wanted to sing. So I had to evolve a different way of talking. I, you Incidentally, have, this is, this is, I have a question here. Because yeah. I feel like this is the issue that I come up against when people say, oh, do you teach? And, I, and I'm always hesitant because I'm like, well, probably not in the way that you want to learn you know, and I don't say that to people, but that's what I think, you know, because most of the time, like what you're describing, people come to you as a voice teacher and what they want you to do is give them what they need for a song or for an aria or for they want a coach. Yeah, they want a coach. And, and I think that the idea of a truly integrated technique is something that is, you know, almost completely foreign to most students, especially in America. Um, so how do you find teaching a technique and getting people on board when mostly what they want, and like you're talking about these community singers, how do you, how do you find that process? Well, I sort of bridged that gap earlier. I skipped over one part of my life's history, which was that right from the, when I was teaching in Texas, I got involved as a voice teacher for the International Square Dance Callers Association. As it should be. I don't know. I mean, as a matter of fact, my trip to New Zealand this last summer was going to be paid for because I was going to do a, a three-day workshop for the, the Australian Square Dance Callers Association. Yes. And obviously, these were people who were all, of all different professions who did a side, law, a side job uh, calling square dancing. Western dancing, but as the as the uh, GIs went off to war in other parts of the world, they carried square dancing with them, and so square dancing is popular in Japan and it's popular in in Germany, it's in Australia, and I mean it's just Western square dancing, American square dancing, but they have to sing and they have to use their voices for sometimes three-hour parties, three-hour dances. And they have a, what they call a calling tip, which is just choreography, calling people choreography. And then they have a singer's tip, which they take a, a popular song and they, they have to sing it and integrate the 
choreography into the lyrics of this of the song and so that's a tip and so these guys wanted to know how to sing and so i just somehow got involved with that kind of through the back door but then all of a sudden became became the guru where i was traveling all over the united states almost every weekend to different local caller clubs all over the country to teach their local callers how to do that when they wanted me to be a square dance caller and i had no interest in being a square dance caller i just i can't imagine why Arden. i mean it, <laughs> I, I, I like the square dance but i, I, I it's, it's a it's a cultural subset that just i'm not interested in western you know, wear and yeah you know it's a yeah it's it's a once a week maybe or once a month or maybe just a couple times a year kind of thing for most people i love it I think it's great. I want to yeah, do it more of it. Hey, it wasn't it's great. wonderful socially. It's good exercise. It's joyful. You it's know, fun. Grab your partner. Yeah. All of I those things it. are all of those things are exactly true. Um, and and so I I could take it if I just go to a square dance. But to be a square dance caller, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> That's not what I paid all that money to learn how to do. But along the way in my teaching, I had to learn how to explain things in a non-academic way. Yeah. And that was a great blessing to me because I had to learn how to make it, bring it down to its most basic level. Human speak, yeah. Yes. So I can remember the very first event I went to was in Kansas City and I just didn't know what I was getting into. I'd done a little local workshop and we had a good time and they wanted me to come to the national convention and so I flew out on a Sunday, on a Friday night, because it was a weekend event. And the first session was going to be Saturday morning. I got in, got my hotel room. I, I jotted a few notes while I was traveling on the plane about what I'd like to talk about. And I got up the next morning and went into the first session, and there were 2,000 square dance callers. And they filled up this huge ballroom, and they left me there for three hours. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm creative on my feet, so I would... But I was having them um, quack like ducks and t talking about tweeters and woofers and making off-color remarks about the, what that might mean. And I, I was just, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I made it through the first three hours and came back for my afternoon sessions. And there, there was, were breakout, breakout sessions. They had people who did choreography. They had people who did uh, costuming and marketing and all of that kind of stuff. But nobody went to those things. They all came back into my session. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yikes. And they just paraded all of the most famous square dance callers before me to, to critique them. I didn't know them from anybody. And so I just told them the truth and that everybody just had this hoot and holler time because I was brash enough to attack the people that were the very famous ones. I mean, it was just a, it was just a lot. Cowell, right? When you're the Simon Cowell of... Uh, uh... The square dance community, <laughs> something like that. So anyway, trying to trying to figure out how to put complex things into simple terms was part of that experience, and that was a really really useful process to me. So the three legs of my of my approach are learning how to sing what I call on threshold. Do you know what that means, Rachel? I mean, I can sort of extrapolate what that means, and you can correct me. I mean, do let's see to me what that means is in a sustainable way where you're not pushing where the voice is balanced with right what you're creating in your production so that you're using support in the body rather than your throat yeah so 
what that starts out with is um, a discussion of the Bernoulli principle, which is, of course, very scientific, that air, air in motion creates low pressure or suction, and that that happens uh, as it, the air comes out of your lungs at a certain velocity. It narrows and speeds up as it passes through the glottis, and that creates a suction. And that that by itself is enough to cause the voice to vibrate, and that, that most singers do much, have too much resistance and tension in their vocal cords. So the process is to convince people to let go of the vocal valve and make a breathy sound. And then once you've made the breathy sound, to discover how it is that you manage your breath so that you can control the velocity of your breath. And once the velocity hits the right speed, the vocal folds would just start to vibrate spontaneously. And there's this magical moment where people say, I'm not doing anything in my throat, but I'm making a sound that's richer and fuller than I'm used to making. How is that possible? And that's that, that threshold where the speed of your breath is the trigger that makes the vocal folds vibrate rather than the muscular control of the vocal folds. So that, that has, it, it's the name I give to it. I wish I could find some other name because until you hear somebody either explain it or demonstrate it, it's a jargon. It does, it's, a, it's a terminology that doesn't have a specific meaning. But that's, that, that's what that means. So along the way, then what you have to do is to figure out if I can do that on one note, can I do that on a phrase? Can I do it through the whole of a song? And if I'm doing it through the whole of the song, how do I know that I'm doing that? And it makes a person then have to start to rethink what are their biofeedback loops that they have depended upon all of their days and how is this different from that? And and it takes, uh, it's a big deal. Right, yeah. It's a, it turns out to be a big deal. It's like, if you can learn how to sing on threshold all of the time, that's about two thirds of everything you need to know about singing. Right, and, it's huge. And, yeah, it really is a huge deal, but it's so dang simple. It just goes, it, it goes exactly opposite to making a sound. I mean, it's it more simple. And the reason I say that, and this is gonna sound really, potentially really rude, but some of the very best singers that have ever lived have not necessarily been the brightest in the bunch, if you know what I'm saying. I so, do, I definitely do. And I say that like, because it's like, how is it that that guy can do this? That guy, you know what I mean? And yeah. how it is, it's because, you know, they're not getting in their own way. They're too dumb to get in their own way or too simple to, to get in their own way. They're not, yeah, they're not going to complicate it for themselves. They're like, oh, but this no. is <laughs> They're not There's analytical a, creatures. Right. Yeah. And, and yet, in a very analytical way. So. And yet, and, and the truth of the matter is, they are enormously analytical, but in an entirely different kinesthetic kind of a way. Yes. Mm. They feel their way through their singing rather than thinking their way through their singing. Yes. It's a sort of like uh, the analogy, um, Bobby Knight was a famous basketball coach and he said, when the game is the basketball game's on the line and my team's behind by one point, and I got somebody at the line who is uh, shooting two free throws, I do not want my A student there. I want my C minus student there because my C minus student is too slow witted to think about it very much. He just does it. And uh, the, a, the A person is, uh, how far is it? How much, effort, how much effort do I have to put into it? He gets outside of himself and analyzes until he misses the shot. Right. And that's kind of this. And actually, 
um, that's really one of the great difficulties because in, the, in an academic environment, the emphasis is all about cognition, all about mental process, gathering information, factoids, uh, passing tests, stuff like that. And all of that stuff just gets in the way of natural spontaneous singing. Would you say that, that feels like a natural segue, would you say that that could be coined as one of the main obstacles for singers training in a university setting? Yes. Yes, I do. I think that's one of them. There's another one that's almost as important, and that is that you have the, the world broken up into quarters or semesters, and you have to show something, some sort of tangible, measurable progress from the beginning of a semester to the end of a semester. And the evolution of singing is so, um, it comes when it comes and not by a clock. And so it's easy to either not delve into the technique because it's something that you can't measure so readily. You, or, and so you, you learn literature and you coach literature. But the development of a, the ability to sing across an octave, an octave and a half, two octaves in an even scale to even out the registration, to be able to sing not just short phrases, but to sing long phrases, to be able to have enough agility in your voice so that you can sing florid passages. All of those things are technical based and those are harder to measure and therefore they don't get measured nearly as much. So right. the, the end of the semester jury stands in the way of that sort of ongoing evolutionary process. Right. Yeah, you've told me before that um, in, the, in the olden days, uh, students would, would do just vocalises for two years, was it two years, before moving on to songs? Maybe it was longer than that. It was you mentioned than a name, that. Fontanelli, I remember. Uh, Can we no, talk he, a little bit about... It was Farinelli. Farinelli Far, the, oh, Farinelli. And the, and the castrati and all of those guys, when they would start their training, they would start prepubescent. And, and of course, then they'd be castrated for the castrati, but they okay. would start very, very young and they would do nothing but onset exercises and they would do nothing except a slur, portamento, uh, and then they would go into scales. They had as one of their, their watchwords a cantilena, which means an ongoing sung through line. And so you look at the Baroque music, particularly the florid Baroque music, and they sang enormously long phrases. They managed the breath over enormously long spans of time. And they did that without interruption. So you look at the way the composers wrote the music, it was to exploit the skills that they had. So they had them leaping uh, sixths, octaves, tenths, octaves and a half, two octaves, two plus octaves, and they were supposed to do that without interrupting this even smooth scale. Then they would get involved in florid singing, but they had to do it always in the sense of an uninterrupted vocal line, this, this long, stretched out, smooth cantilena. Sounds like Fiorelligi. So, does the sound, yeah. does the sound, uh, does the sound of a fisferato have anything to do with that? Like the quality of the voice that has never changed? Well, yes, but but um, we don't really know what it is anymore. Right. Um, I mean, we don't know, we're kind of glad, right? Yeah, we're glad. But the report the reports were that the voices were powerful, like a man's voice, but it had 
the sweetness of a soprano's voice or a mezzo's voice, and it, it had the ability to sing long, long, long phrases. And if you look at some of the really advanced um, Baroque arias from Johann Hasse, he's one of the, the peaks of that period of time, they're just really hard. They're really hard arias. Um, and it was all based upon this uninterrupted line. And so they'd spend three years just doing vocalises, um, um, vocal drills, then vocalises where they had no words, songs without words. And after they'd mastered that, then the maestro would say, okay, now you can go out and sing. They didn't care about the words. They didn't care about the acting. They just wanted this voice to be near perfection. And and not very many people got it, and so many of them fell along the wayside, particularly the castrati who, who didn't evolve. Then they, they lost their ability to be married and have families, and, and it was just it was rough. It was a bad story. Yeah. Um, but that same tradition was carried on after the castrati were over, you know, in the, in, on into the periods of Mozart. You know, there were still castrati alive when Mozart was writing. And they lived on into the 19th century up until about 1830. So it, it sort of overlapped. But then the true second wave of the, of the bel canto period was Mozart forward to Bellini, especially Rossini, those guys primarily, Donizetti somewhat, although Donizetti is the man who first started to hit the scales toward more power singing. That was something I didn't know about him until much mm -hmm. later. Um, but anyway, those guys, uh, the singers who sang that stuff, were still in their prime, the 1850s, 1860s, into Verdi's time, 1870s, 1880s. You know, I mentioned that Marchese came along in the 1880s, and she was still singing that traditional bel canto repertory. So it was a long evolution. I, I'm just curious about the about the writing for the castrati. Did was there was there ever any delineation like within the composition showing that potentially it was more than one person singing? So the idea that, you know, you would have one person and then another would take over the line so that they would sort of go back and forth or is, or is it written in such a way that it really is for a soloist to sing these really huge long phrases? I'm just curious, I don't know. If you know it is one. for one person. And there's an example of that, Nellie Melba and um, uh, I can't think of her, her first name right now. Uh, the, the daughter of Garcia, there was Nellie, pull up the book, uh, and the names on the front are Melba, uh, what are the names, oh yeah, Calve, Calve, Calve. And, and Melba, and I've forgotten what the other one, but anyway, Marchese. these women, uh, and Mar Marchese, and then there was a Garcia, there was a, a daughter Garcia, maybe that was Melba in her married name, anyway, she had a voice uh, that could scan the range from singing Rosina, the real mezzo voice to the high coloratura soprano. She had uh, way more than a three octave range and the expectation was that they had an even voice across two plus, two and a half, sometimes three octaves of range that they could use in public. So do you really feel that that is because of training and not having to do it all with language or you know the physicality of a person based on the area in which they are from? Now, I don't know the answer to that for sure. I just know that, uh, that it was in uh, France and Spain and Italy 
that all of this stuff was going on. And all of those are Romance languages. And so they have a tendency to put the voice in a certain uh, alignment that seems to be sympathetic to, to this kind of singing. And as soon as the music started to move north into Germany and into the Scandinavian countries where the languages were distinctive and different, then the behaviors were, were changed. They had to go to Italy to learn how to sing because they, they couldn't get it in, in Germany. And they couldn't get it because it wasn't being taught, but also, but you, but you find that even those voices that are Scandinavian can have a more Italianate sound. Absolutely, they can. Yeah, it's just a matter of training. So I don't think that it's, yeah, I don't think it's... Um, Regional or physical. No, I don't think so at all. But I do think that the length of time and the, the discipline of the training is part of the reason why we don't have quite the same degree of success. We're inclined to be in a rush and not just let the voice develop. And we don't generally start early enough nowadays. Who can say that? I mean, you get little five-year-old phenoms that are winning competitions. So, so I, I don't know. Maybe that it's just that we're always in a big hurry. When is a good there. age to start? Generally, the the feeling is that you start post-puberty. That's what I've always believed. I've begun to question my own beliefs because I think that, for example, if a if a young ch child can learn to sing on threshold that child learns uh, the, that the vocal cords don't have to be stiff and resistant. If that child learns how to inflect his or her voice so that it doesn't have a overt register breaks in it, but that there's a smooth transition between registers, that that becomes um, helpful and can walk a person through the physiological changes that go on at puberty. And they, they happen for both men and women more exaggeratedly for men, but it happens for women in the same way. Women's laryngae change shape, they become wider, they don't necessarily become bigger, but they become wider. <laughs> it's like birthing hips, you know? Like, oh, okay, yeah. So, Where'd that come from, what? <laughs> yeah, why, 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 I used to have this really narrow hips, I where did they come from? Sorry. Yeah. So something, something along those lines, and so, Women have to learn to negotiate their voices again. And often, this, this is anecdotal information, but I've known boys that have come through um, boy choir, some boys that were um, really successful in uh, back east in, in um, children's choirs, treble voices. And those individuals, I've never seen one of them successfully transition into an adult male singer. And the only question, the only reason, I guess, is because they become so familiar and have so much success with this lighter treble voice that when their voices go through the change, it's too chaotic and they just either lose confidence or give up or I don't know what. But I've never seen one successfully transition from um, soprano boy choir to tenor or so on and so forth. So that's a, that's a vote against starting them too early. And so I'd, I'd have to say I'm a little ambivalent about that. And there's a difference, right, between choral singing, where if you if you have a gift as a child, uh, your voice will somewhat be exploited, right? Um, versus starting a child or you know, if he doesn't child, you know, let's say like yeah. twelve or thirteen on scales, on you know 
slight movement, just very slowly and on language. Those are yeah. things, you know, and just, I mean, you know, you can do all kinds of ear training and, but, but you do have to be working with someone that wants that. Like, do they really want to build an instrument? Most of the time their attention spans are too short. Right. And their level of commitment, they've got to get some positive feedback to keep them going. And there's, it's a long slog to become a really, really good singer. And it's a bit, a bit isolated and the person can become discouraged, lose uh, motivation. Right, because, because there's, the, there's the analytical part of us that's like, okay, these are the necessary things in order to become a performer, in order to become a good singer. But then there's the performer that needs yeah. to perform. <laughs> so there's another side to this too, in terms of the development of the human voice. And that is, um, these are words that I use periodically. The first thing that has to happen is a person has to gain a certain degree of comprehension or competency in being able to recognize when they're singing on this threshold place and how do they maintain it and what are the, what are the feedback loops that they use to, to help them. Because you, while, you're, while you're developing it, you have to watch it so carefully and it makes you kind of self-conscious. But that's the truth for any, any habit that you want to change. You want to change your handwriting, you have to just watch your handwriting. You go slow and watch it until, and you move from competency to consistency, and that's really hard. And then you go from consistency to habituation, and that's triply hard. There was a, about, about 15 years ago, there was a research study done in New Zealand uh, about golf swing. And they, they taught that a golf swing from a person who's never done it before to, to consistency takes a minimum of 3,000 repetitions. So you, at first you're spastic and you miss it. And as you refine your skills, it becomes more and more consistent. But, but if you're going to make ask, and in that process of 3000 swings, do you have someone there? Yes. Moving your hand or moving coaching you or, or, or correcting, correcting your feet. It's yeah. not just get out of, you know, in the driving range, just like, I'm going to hit this thing. I'm going to hit it so yeah, many 3, times. times. Eventually it's going to be amazing. It's like, no, it's not. Sorry. Well, it'll get better. It'll get better anyway. But, but in, if you're really going to be good, it takes, a minimum of 3,000 strokes to be able to get to where your, your stroke can be consistent. And the interesting thing about a golf swing, it's a little bit like singing where you have multiple muscle groups that have to work in coordination with each other in a, in a smooth, natural kind of a way. But then to go to a habit, it takes a minimum of 10,000 strokes. So you think about that, that's more than three times you'd have the number of times you have to do it to get it consistent to get it to be habituated. And one of the things about a habit is that you do something without having to think about it. Unfortunately, that takes a long, long time that most people aren't willing to do. So inevitably what happens is that people will persist in the development of a skill, singing on threshold, for example, they will, they will do it until they get good at it. And then they'll think, oh good, I'm done with that. Let's get on to the next thing. And in the minute that they make that decision, their skill set starts to degrade. Right. So that two months later, they think, wait, I used to have this under good control. Why is it not working now? And it's because they took their eye off the process too soon. And they had to persist along the way. 
But what that means is that while you're in the process of going from consistency to habituation, you're still preoccupied with the process. And, and so your singing is pretty unexpressive. You don't win any contests because you're not saying anything except I'm singing with my technique. But you have to go through that process to get it deeply habituated enough so that it can be free. But inevitably what happens to people too often is that they think that getting their technique right is the end of the journey. When the truth of the matter is, that's the beginning of the journey. You know, and so, so then when you don't have to think about it anymore, then you have the freedom to be able to think about the expression and the meaning of the words and the nuances and the languages that are involved in that. And that's just the long haul. It's a 10 year slog to get to that place. Boy, it sure is. <laughs> well, but if you want to do it, if you want to do it for your life, it's worth it to put in that initial amount of time, right? I mean, whether Absolutely. it's two years or four years of really making sure that you do your, your 10,000 hours of, you know, focusing on what you need to focus on, then you have the vocal freedom for decades after that, right, of, of career. Whereas if you don't put in the time for that and you're looking for it, this is where I have to insert a quote by... Um, Beverly Sills, I think, because she's an opera singer. Um, there are no shortcuts to anywhere worth going, right? So, so if you if you take the time to build the foundation in the beginning, this is me talking to my younger self, by the way. Um, yeah. Then, the <laughs> what was that, Rachel? I said, dear younger self. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Because it's, it's hard. We are impatient and we do have that, that side of us that just wants to perform. And we listen to recordings of artists who, you know, they've, they did, they've been on that long slog and they've, and they put in the time and we want to sound like them right away because we're impatient. Yeah. And, but then we end up cutting corners and eventually pay the price, right? It may work for, for a season. We can kind of get by but we're not really, um, yeah, we're not really doing the, the full yeah, process. That's right. Um, I'm thinking, let's say that you're a soprano and that you want to have a career like that. If you start when you're at age 16, and if we assume just for general conversation, we're talking about 10 years of evolution, then you're 26 when your package is together where you can start really started making inroads in your career. Well, that's actually deemed about five years late. You know, the people who are 26 to 28 and going for the Metropolitan Opera auditions are considered past their prime. When the truth of the matter is they should be just coming into their prime. Yeah. So again, we're faced with that, that same dilemma. It doesn't mean that you can't already start to talk about expressive things, obviously, so that if it takes 100% of your mental concentration to hold your voice together, then there's no energy left for expression. But if it takes 80% of your concentration to hold your voice together, that leaves you 20% that you can give over to expression. And the, the deeper you go into that process, the less mental effort it takes to keep it in line and the more mental uh, energy that's available for expression. At least that's how I view it. 
Right. And that's assuming, cause I think of my, I think of myself uh, beginning voice lessons at age 12. And by the time I finished BYU, when I was 20, barely 22, I certainly had been at it for 10 years, but did not have the consistency of training that I needed. Um, and maybe we can talk about this just for a moment. Um, but I, I had probably at least six different teachers while I was at BYU. And so, you know, here I am doing my best to, to be a student of the voice yeah. and, and yet receiving information, not that it was even conflicting information, but it was just varied information from varied sources. And I was trying to assimilate all of that into my, you know, barely developed brain. You weren't also given, you weren't also given evaluative skills. You weren't empowered, partly because of the culture, you weren't empowered to question. And that's been one of the problems that I've seen about voice teaching is that voice teachers are kind of, can be kind of dictator-like. And they can, and the student feels like they have to do what they're told to do. And then, then if the teacher either is off base in what they're asking the teacher, the student to do, or if they're not listening carefully or distracted, and they miss some of the signals that things are off the rails, then a, a student can go a long time thinking they're doing the right thing and just discover that they've got their ladder leaned up against the wrong wall. And then they have to go back down to the beginning and start all over. And that, that's so, so discouraging. So along the way, one of the methodologies that, that uh, Alyssa can talk about is that when I start out with a student, it's a contract. Uh, so we work on things together and the student has the ability of knowing what it feels like even if they can't put it in words yet, they still are in possession of the kinesthetic sensations. And I bring to the, the table the, um, my ears to listen carefully to what's transpiring and the background that says, this is a pathway that can help you avoid something. And that little detour that you're starting to take, you're not gonna be happy if you stay on that road very long because you're gonna get caught. So let's bring you back in, rein you back in. But along the way, it's a, it's a mutual conversation so that there are going to come times when I say that's right and the student says that doesn't feel right. Or conversely, the student will say, I like how that feels and I'll say, I don't like how that sounds. And in that moment, I just simply say, will you suspend your expectations for a brief period of time? Not forever, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, maybe six weeks at the outside to persist at this until you become sufficiently familiar with it. Because you'll know that what I'm asking you to do doesn't hurt, it just doesn't feel normal. And there's a difference between bad and normal. You know, if it, if it feels it's, bad, that's bad. And I think it's really great, Arden, that you, you will tell them we suspend for a time. Like to yeah. give them like a month to six weeks or something, or you know, a couple of months in trying this new method to give them some time to just say, oh, okay, like there's an end site in case it's not working and you will not have wasted my time. I think that that's- Yeah, and it's not years. And because like, I mean, I remember studying for a couple of years with a teacher that came highly recommended from one of the best, apparently, you know, pedagogists in New York um, at Manhattan School. And I was like, okay, well, if this person comes recommended by this person, then I'm gonna work with them. 
And I remember listening back to my lessons with them after about a year and a half. And I just started weeping because my voice was gone. Like yeah. it had become this tiny thing. It had become a glimmer of what it was. And I didn't know why, but I knew it wasn't, it wasn't right. And it was in that moment that I was like, I have to leave the studio. I have to find someone else who's going to help, you know, bring out what I actually am instead of, you know, what they think that I should be. Um, I agree. Right. And so I think empowering your students and your students to know that it is a dialogue and also like that there does need to be a level of trust, but that you're not going to ask them to give that to you indefinitely. <laughs> you know, that you're absolutely right. Like here, here it is for a time. And then you tell me what you think. Right. And um, along the way, you know, it takes a long time to establish a habit. So if somebody spends uh, a couple of weeks, three months, even six months persisting at something, they're not going to make a habit of that. Hmm. That they, they will be influenced, but it's, it's correctable. So if it's offline, it's okay. It's when you make a total commitment to something and stay at it for several years, and then you just find yourself painted into a corner that you cannot get out of. And when all things are said and done, it's, it's the student that has to take the information, absorb it. I can't teach anybody anything, but people can learn from me, if you know what I mean by that. So the responsibility is for them to absorb that information. I give them feedback. I give them coaching, advice, uh, warnings, but ultimately it's their voice. They're the ones that have to live with it. And so it used to hurt my feelings when people, I'd, I'd use this approach and then people would graduate, go away and they'd say, I just learned how to be this great singer and, and Arden didn't have anything to do with it. Sure. Because it was their it was their business, right? It was their voice, and they didn't see the details of of the guiding that went along. They just saw that they were getting better and better and better and better and better, and that used to trouble me because my ego was involved in that. And now I just think, if I could stay invisible, that would just be so cool, you know, it'd just be fine. And um, yeah, so it, it, it part of it has to do with the spirit the attitude of the teacher and if the teacher is needy and the teacher needs the adulation then all of those things things get turned backwards and the, the issue is on the student and the student's development and evolution right that sounds terribly altruistic and i'm not really that good at that but but that's the direction i'm trying to go but it makes sense for you know the voice as an instrument and when you take yourself as teacher out of the equation of whether or not that instrument has merit you know like you're here to tune an instrument like it has merit because it is yeah. you know, not because of anything that you do to it it it's right that it, it is and you're there to to be be the best help that you can i have a current student who is probably in her mid-50s and uh, she plays the violin, but she's not a she's a an avocational musician. Mm -hmm. And she came. Uh, I teach her daughter, and she liked what was happening with the daughter. And so she said, "Will you teach me how to sing?" Well, we've been working together, going on two years. And when she started out, she had a range of about a sixth, and it was very unattractive. And and now it's not beautiful, but the tone's clear. And the range is getting to where it's almost to two octaves. 
um, and she's starting to unlock the door in the top of her voice. She still is too shy to sing for anybody in public. Even and in a sometimes, concert, that's such a bummer. Yeah, I mean, she just won't. She'll sing. She's now gotten after a year and a half where she'll sing in, other, in front of other members of her family. But, I mean, this is a private person. But um, that's her business, what she does with it. And I can look at that and I can say, she's different now than she was. And so it isn't that usually what happens is you take people with precocious talent and then you invest in them hard and they then advance your career as a teacher because their success is rubbing off on you. But that's, uh, that gets really kind of... Uh, it's yeah. emotionally toxic is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because I think so too. Because we end up turning, you know, turning a voice, which is a gift from God, into a commodity. And I feel like you have to do that as an agent, in a way. But you aren't, as an agent, the person sitting there with them, telling them how to do every vocal thing that they're doing. Or as an actor, like, you know, yeah. that they're not involved in process. And nor should they be. Nor should anyone who has a financial or a you know, any kind of career motivating purpose be involved mm. in your emotional well-being. That's how I feel. <laughs> yeah. So the emphasis on the process is really, really important. And, and the voice teacher is the person who is in that position to assist in that, to make the place safe. So one of the choices that I've made, and I've, I've regretted this choice on a few occasions, but once I make a commitment to work with a teacher, I will, uh, with a student, I will never break that commitment they have to be the one to break the commitment. They, they have to be the ones to leave. I will continue to work with them even when I don't think that they're paying attention and when they're wasting my time and their time because it's part of the price that I have to pay in order for them to feel safe. Right, that they know that you're never going to turn your back on them. That's right. Yeah. And it, it's hard. I, I've, got, I've got one guy right now who never does anything. He never practices between his oh, lessons. So he comes in for a half hour session once a week and i've been working with him for a um, year and a half and the progress is so slow so slow <laughs> but he's but he's getting better yeah that's okay and if he's okay with it being so slow then that's his business that's his business isn't it interesting? I think that we, we've talked about this too, Arden, and I'm getting the sense because we, we probably need to wrap up our, our, our time together, but there's just so much more that I'd like to talk with you about that maybe we need to do a second session. Um, maybe. A sec <laughs> what, what, what I mean, uh, I'm not smart enough to fill two sessions. <laughs> That's not true. I want to hear, I want to hear so much more about your directorial ideas. That's something that I think would be very entertaining. You've already shared with oh, me just oh, a few. Yeah. yeah, as a director, but um, but I was going to say, hold on, what was I going to say? It was related to... Um, We're talking about the psychology between... Students. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Um, basically, there are a lot of things when we, when we come in contact with a student or with another singer or with another human being, there are a lot of things going on beneath the surface that that may be um, determining the motivation or lack thereof um, and and or maybe that feeling of safety or lack thereof that would allow them to progress and we just can't know um, 
And it, 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 of course it's frustrating. It's frustrating for the singer. It's frustrating for the teacher, but we just can't know when, when things will open up exactly um, all the time. And that's just because emotional baggage and feelings of, we've talked about this a little bit as well, but you know, when, when you don't feel like you're enough in certain ways. There is something about knowing that, you know, when whatever your malady is, when whatever your, whatever your incompleteness is, when it is on the outside and can be seen by others or can be experienced by others through interaction, there's a certain humility that is just going to be there. Um, and I think part of the job, you know, as teachers and at, just as human beings in our interaction is to be able to see and show our incompleteness and see others and have it be okay, right? And yeah, that last, right? that's sort of what it seems like what you're talking about. Yeah, so that last part of your sentence is really good. It's okay, you know, um, and one of the, one of the things when you, when you set up in a, a relationship of trust with a person where they can feel safe, then what they really, really crave is the truth. Yes. And as long as that truth can be delivered in a place of trust, and safety. then it's the most valuable piece of information that they can possibly receive. If there isn't trust, then truth can be very dangerous for a person because it threatens the things that uh, frighten them the most, where oh, they feel the most it dangerous. Can, it can be delivered in such a way that it feels veiled, right? Like sometimes truth, and I, you see this with a lot of teachers, it's like, well, I suppose you could sing it like that. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like such a mind because you're like, well, no, I know that wasn't right, but you said that. And then, you know, and like, it just sends singers in, in, in circles and you start to spin because yeah. they, these are the people that need to be the ones that you can trust the most. And just like you're saying, how you deliver that message is, is, is just as important as the message itself. I can remember an occasion where I had a young lady uh, who was extremely ambitious. She had come from, uh, she'd come into college coming from the Interlochen school. So she already, already thought of herself as a pretty nifty somebody. And she came in and, and she was very ambitious. And so she worked really hard. And I was, uh, I directed the, the last production that I directed at BYU was uh, Beatrice and Benedict. So at any rate, I didn't cast her. She auditioned and I didn't cast her. And she came in sort of assertively and said, why didn't you cast me? And I said, I would have, I wanted to cast you, but I can't cast you because I can't find the center in your pitch. Your vibrato is so wild that mm. there's no center in your pitch and there's no line in your voice. Mm. And that's the kind of truth that needs to be spoken. But uh, I'm not sure I had the, I'm not sure I had enough of a relationship with her to be able to say that as candidly as I did. And so I never did get a chance to work with her. Mm -hmm. The relationship of trust, maybe. And I had to learn. I had to learn from those unfortunate experiences that I couldn't just tell the truth. I had to, I had to establish a relationship that would allow for that kind of truth to be told without fear. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed talking with both of you. Both of you.
No, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful, Arden. And I, I do think if you'd be open to it, maybe somewhere down the, down the road, we'll, we'll have you come back to talk about some other things, some, uh, some of your, your pet projects and things that are interesting to you. This was the things that I, I, you know, I like to pick your brain and I'm glad that you're open to it. Um, but you know, some of those things about Mozart and appoggiature and, um, and the different oh, styles, issues, styles so, issues. Yeah. Yeah. And just the stuff, you know, like, like casting butterflies, someone vulnerable, all those, all those little things that you've shared. I would just love to, uh, to give you a platform to give other people ideas about, cause I just think it's brilliant. I just think that you have some really good ideas and they should be shared unless you I'm want glad. to get them to yourself, of course. Well, I don't know that I have them. It. They just kind of come out of my mouth and I think, did I really say that? No. What do you know? <laughs> I want to hear, I want to hear more of the earthy ideas, Arden. Yes. Do you want to, do you want to finish <laughs> off with an earthy idea? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So this is back. This is, uh, this was back to um, Flatermouse. And I didn't have uh, a ballet in the second act. So I had to come up with something. And so what I did was, as I listened to the audition, I found that there were nine sort of oversized women with oversized voices. And I thought, I'm going to put the ride of the Valkyrie in the middle of the Flatermouse. Why not? Well, yeah. And I did. And it was kind of, it was like a non sequitur. It was like, where is all this coming from? And it's <laughs> anachronistic. It's not timeline correct. What? Germany. <laughs> Certainly not operetta. Yeah. No, no. So what happened was that I had uh, the costumer create breastplates for these women and horns and all of the stereotypical stuff. But the guy made rivets right where the nipples are supposed to be on the breasts. So that already was a, a step. And there wasn't anything I couldn't say, you, you know, you got to get those rivets out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so I had um, just added some more and they just could have been, you know, a little like something else. Yeah. So I had I had this the, the lead singer. She came in with a cape draped across her like this. Like and that. she had her spear mm -hmm. and she came through the crowd. And as she came, she was poking people in the bottom. And so people were bouncing out of the way as they were being pushed aside by her spear and their fannies until she got down right to uh, Orlovsky. And Orlovsky was, it was there and she says, we are Lenny. And Orlovsky fainted dead away. Look, look at her bosom and just fainted flat on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was absolutely hilarious, and in the audience, it was like <sighs> <laughs> Provo. <laughs> oh man, that's great! Uh, uh, man. It's important. Had to test those boundaries. <laughs> well, uh, I did, and um, <laughs> I didn't paint inside the lines near enough. But you know. Um, I, I love the creativity of being an opera director, but becoming a pedagogist tapped, made me tap into the intellect, intellectual side of my mind. And I have a good mind, a curious mind. And it really, it changed the trajectory of my life and put me in a place where I could learn some really, really important things that were a benefit to me and to other people far more than a, a cool production. Yeah. This is great. Thank you so much for being with us and for sharing all these insights. And we'll definitely 
be setting up another time so that we can chat some more about about creative endeavors. Great, I'd love that. And and if I get to New Zealand, you can count on the fact I'm going to stop in and see you. Absolutely, please do. <laughs>